29% Equal is a podcast celebrating significant women who have shaped how we practice architecture today. Produced by me, Sarah Ackland. I'm a practicing architect and PhD researcher studying gendered bodies in public space. So why 29% Equal? Well, the last formal survey undertaken by the ARB, or the Architects Registration Board, was in 2019. This revealed that only 29% of qualified architects are female identifying. Women are routinely excluded from the architecture profession, from the books we read and even the references and precedents that we study at university. In an effort to eliminate this erasure of women, I have asked a young architect, designer, artist or activist from Park W and some of their friends to have a discussion with a woman they feel deserves recognition, or perhaps more recognition. We ask these amazing women about their defining moments, their activism, who inspires them, the advice that they would give to their younger selves, and finally, what a more equitable city might look like. Hi, and welcome back to 29% Equal in conversation with Park W. In today's episode, Yemi Aladaran, an activist, architect, development manager, co-founder of Paradigm Network and core member of Park W, speaks with Alcia Wuzu, OBE. Elsie, an architect and activist herself, has broken the glass ceiling many times and in the year 2000 found her own practice, Elsie Wazu Architects. Elsie is also the founder of the Society of Black Architects. Throughout her career, she has questioned the architectural profession and stood firm. Elsie and Yemi discuss her campaign to become president of the RIBA, her work with Peter Blake, and her defining moment, refurbishing the Supreme Court. This episode was incredible to produce. It took place during the 2021 Euro football games, which Elsie used to ask us, why doesn't our profession look as diverse as the England football team? Elsie shares with us a woman who inspires her, which I think is my favourite of the series, and gives advice to her younger self. Learn how to show off. This podcast has been created with thanks to the RIBA Research Fund and supported by Katie Lloyd-Thomas of Newcastle University. Here's Yemi and Elsie. Hope you enjoy it. Elsie, such such an honour, such an honour to be interviewing you um, this evening. So I will, yeah, I yeah, I can't wait to pick your brains um, with these uh, questions we've got here. So let's start off with um, this one, which is: Can you tell us or speak to us about a defining moment, or even moments, a couple of moments for you in your career as a as a woman? Well, I suppose that there, there, there isn't really a snapshot, if you see what I mean. I mean, um, I suppose in the sense of enjoying a project and feeling that you're, I am, I was learning a huge amount. Um, the best experience I've had in those terms, I suppose, is the Supreme Court, working on the Supreme Court. That was a fantastic experience. Um, mostly because it was completely unexpected. Um, I hadn't been expecting to be appointed to co-lead a team and I hadn't been expecting to meet all these wonderful judges and I hadn't been expecting to meet um, Brenda Hale, Baroness Hale, and have such amazing support and friendship from her. So um, I think that's probably, yeah, I would say that that was the, came closest to being a highlight, a highlight of my career. So it, really interesting there because there's some really 
big and influential names. And of course, how many of us get to design Supreme Courts? Not, not many. Um, so I think you have there kind of a high profile client and uh, a typology that made the, that project so meaningful. Were there other things perhaps maybe going on at that point of your career that set this project apart from um, some of the others that you were working working on at that time? Well, it was the first time I'd really worked in a big organisation. So um, I had always um, shied away from being part of um, um, organised um, companies, architectural companies. So I had, I'd worked in a collective, um, which is how I started my career, at uh, Solon South East. Um, of blessed memory, um, or I'd worked for myself and on the basis that if there was going to be a hierarchy, I wanted to be at the top of it, thank you very much. And some of the best advice I was given was when I was in first year at the AA and um, wonderful Mark Fisher said, um, you know, the best bit of advice I can give you is um, never work for people you don't like or admire. Um, so, of course, that meant I, you know, there's <laughs> a very limited scope um and um so i started my i started my practice um with with helen teague and when she went off to make lovely clothes with dawn french <laughs> our practice is called arusa and teague i started my own practice um and never really looked back until field and Mawson came knocking on my door uh, with all these wonderful projects and um so, and I became a partner. I became a partner there. So that was shock to the system. And the other shock to the system was to be told that in three weeks' time, I was going to take the lead with Hugh Fielden at the Supreme Court, at the Supreme, on the Supreme Court. Um, so it was all a bit of a roller coaster, you know. And, and the wonderful thing about working at the Supreme Court, working on the Supreme Court, was that, you know, to have a client. Lady Hale and her fellow law lords, and she being a great feminist as well. Um, it was just, you know, and, and just having great support from them. It was a complete um, surprise, a, a really pleasant surprise. Um, and I still sort of carried on my own practice and had my own interests. Um, but, you know, it was just a sort of juggling so many things at the same time. Um, and then Green Park came along. So it was just one thing after another, really. Uh, but it was a brilliant time. Yeah, it was a decade of my life and practice. And Elsie, how do you think in that time, how do you think things have changed for women in architecture? And I, I guess, I mean, that's such a huge question, but it would be um, good to hear your thoughts and touching on things such as perhaps um, profile, visibility, representation, pay, having the voices of women in architecture heard? Um, well, I think things have changed. Obviously, they would have to change. As somebody said, um, they'd gone from um, um, absolutely abysmal to totally awful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, um, from, from um, student days to now, it, just looking at the statistics, it's clear that there are many, many more women in the profession and many more women 
are staying in the profession. Lots are leaving, but many women are staying in the profession. I think the great sadness is that you don't see women through throughout, from you know, from top to bottom, as it were. You know, there's a, there's a sort of concentration of women in the middle rankings, the middle to lower rankings, and of course because lots of architects are sole practitioners. There are many women in that kind of field. So um, women are overrepresented in the small and micro practices. Um, so although women are present, they are perhaps not as powerful as they might be. But we also have to look at women of um, different um, social social classes, you know, social um, women of um, not just the gender, but um, race and um, other diverse, um, diversities as well. So I think overall, um, things have changed, things have got better, but there's, as, as the cliche goes, there's still an awful lot of work to do. Uh, and that actually goes really, I mean, that's a fantastic segue into the next question, which is, um, do you see activism in your work? And now I, I feel like I can almost answer this one for you, Elsie. So before I pass on to you to, to answer, I personally have benefited from your activism. So for me, the answer there is a massive yes. I, I do see activism in your work. And I'm sure you need no reminding, Elsie, um, but your RIBA Plus 25 campaign was incredible incredibly successful and impactful. And as a result of your leadership and with support from others in the profession, I think there were about eight to 10 diverse voices, including myself, who were voted on to RIBA Council in 2017 by the membership. So it would be great to get your response to the question and also to for you to speak a little bit more about that RIBA 25 campaign, how it was birthed and, and what you want its legacy to, to be. Um, well, gosh, it seems such a long time ago now. Um, I, I suppose it started when I was, um, I, I, I was voted on to the River Council um, and found myself and one other person, um, the only people of colour in uh, a room of 60, 70 people. Um, and I hadn't had that experience for a very, very long time. And it just seemed that, you know, in the 21st century, it was just not, it wasn't tenable. I mean, it was completely unacceptable. Um, and uh, the, the campaign was really inspired by the work that Doreen Lawrence had been doing and coming up for a significant anniversary since Stephen Lawrence was tragically murdered. You looked around that room and you thought, would Stephen have been welcome here? And how many young people who look like Stephen are, are benefiting from an education and are making the best use of their talents? And the fact that, you know, that lost talent is represents not just a loss to um, the family and, and the person themselves, but also a huge talent that's lost, amount of talent that's lost to society as a whole. Um, and just thinking around those things um, and listening to some of the things that Doreen was saying, 
And it was just wonderful that she agreed to support what became the Plus 25 campaign. It didn't start that way. It started off with, well, you know, let's invite some people to come and talk at the Stephen Lawrence Centre and see what, what happens. And I know that lots of people who came to that meeting weren't expecting to stand for council and found themselves, by luck or ill fortune, becoming members of council. And it has made a huge difference to the profession. I mean, being inside architecture, you kind of think it's this great canopy of universal action. But actually, the profession is only 40,000 people in the UK, and most of those people live in London. And what occurred to me was that if you walk out into the streets of London, you see such a diverse community. And then when you step into the profession, it's almost as if you were walking back sort of, well, certainly 25, maybe 30 years. Um, and to me, it seemed that architecture should be like the rest of society, it should be diverse, should be um, engaged, should be questioning. Um, and that wasn't happening. Um, and also that um, the other thing I thought was, well, you know, you look at the England football team and people are saying, you know, these are the best of the best. This is the best that the country has to offer. So why doesn't architecture, why doesn't the best of architecture look like the England football team? Well, you know, sort of both genders, of course. <laughs> but, 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 but you see, that, I mean, architecture is so monochrome and so monocultural. And the rest of the UK, particularly in London, where the profession is focused, isn't like that. So the task was really just to say, you know, the integrate it should be an integrated process, and we should be part of an integrated, culturally integrated society. So that's really what triggered it. And actually, what we needed to do was to open the doors. You know, you didn't, you didn't want, you didn't need to put a huge amount of work into it if you just. Um, iron up some of the trip hazards and make people feel welcome. Um, people just, there are so many talented people who are interested and prepared to give their time. And, you know, people weren't being paid. This is all voluntary stuff. So it was, it was just fantastic that you and um, the, I think there were nine, nine others with support from um, so many people in, in the industry and the profession help to change Reba and help to change the profession. I mean, you know, that probably means that we've dragged it kicking and screaming into the 19th century. <laughs> you know, you have, to, you have to start somewhere. I think people are beginning to dip their toes into the 20th century now. So that's, you know, that's Positive. progress. Positive, lots of lots of progress there. And the and the big thing for me personally there was an awareness of and knowing that um attaining certain things what was a possibility and of course seeing somebody like you there of your your stature in council was was fantastic but that generally there was a lack of understanding on my part anyway that um, one could get involved with the riba at, at that um level so it was um fantastic to have you kind of like you say opening the doors and sh showing us the way um so that that was brilliant um Next question. Are there any women 
the women's work that you feel have been forgotten about or not given the attention that it should have done and have any of those women inspired you or, or your work? Well, um, so I think, I think um, women in architecture um, has been, there's, there's been a lot of good research done about women in architecture, but I think women's role in, um, in the crafts um, and art and craft of the 20th century, um, just, you know, I, I just keep coming across the most extraordinary women. And one of the women I came across, who, who is actually an architect at all, but was a great, great artist, there's a woman called Ladi Kwali. Um, and Ladi Kwali was uh, a Nigerian uh, Nigerian woman. She came from Abuja, the old Abuja, not the new Abuja. Um, and she was, and she made pots. Um, she made pots for drinking water, for carrying water, well, cooking utensils, basically. Um, um, and she became one of the most famous potters in the world by working with um, another amazing guy who was a, a um, a pupil of Bernard Leach called Michael Cardew. And Michael Cardew lived in the Gold Coast, which was Ghana, and then went to live in Nigeria and met Lady Kwali, and she was making these pots. Um, and she became, effectively, she became a studio potter and one of the most, the most famous potters in the world. And uh, I say to my Nigerian friends, do you know who that woman is on the 20 Naira note? And nobody knows who she is. Um, but she is, she was, um, she was one of the greatest potters of the 20th century. Wow. Um, and of course, in Ghana and in Nigeria, um, women made pots because they were domestic utensils. Mm. And it was beneath the dignity of men to make pots. <laughs> but of course, you know, people like Bernard Leach and, and Michael Cardew were making pots. So when Michael Cardew arrived and he brought with him people hadn't used before, he introduced kilns um, and he introduced glazes. But uh, Lady Polly just carried on making her pots, um, firing them on, in kilns, but also firing them onward. Um, and if you look on the 20 Naira note, there she is making her pots, wearing the MBE, which she got from the Queen. She travelled all around America, uh, to, um, to, to UK, America, all around the world. Her pots are in the V&A, um, in the British Museum. Um, and there she is on the 20 Naira note, and nobody knows who she is. Um, oh, and just the most extraordinary thing. And I suspect that as we begin those conversations around decolonization and what the empire meant. These women who did the equivalent of making domestic, you know, utensils, but became great artists. So that's just one small, one small lesson. But there are, as, as, as I find out more about um, art, art, architecture, crafts, the world of just after empire, around about the forties and fifties, um, I think there is great. There are great discoveries to be made. Oh, that's fantastic! I've I've learned something new, very very new there. It's like it gives um pay to the saying hidden in plain sight. <laughs> it's amazing, right? So so moving on. This is always an interesting one. Um, 
the next question is what advice would you give your younger self oh gosh um well pretty much the advice that i was given which was um not to work with people you don't like or admire which i think is a you know it's a great piece of advice the other thing is um you know trust trust your in instincts because your instincts are usually right um i think i think the interesting thing about um the way certainly the way that i was brought up and i think the way lots of women are brought up is to be continuously second guessing yourself you know so if you have an idea or if you have a thought or you think up a strategy or you, you do a design you don't stride forward and say look what i've done because you know girls are brought up with the you know with the idea that they mustn't show off mm. and one of the worst things you can do if you're a good girl in quotation marks is to be a show off um and you know my dear old mum was that that's that's <laughs> one of her favorite that was one of her favorite expressions and i would say just show off learn how to show off you know learn how to be confident and and to put your work forward and to 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 know when something you've done is worthy of being admired i so love that elsie i absolutely love learning how to show off i'll, I'll try that I'll, I'll let you know how it goes <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the great thing about zaha um when uh, I, I was at the uh, at the same time as zaha is that people used to say, gosh, he's such a show-off. He's always showing off. And, and yeah, whether it was in, you know, the sort of great flurries of Izzy she wore or the, got around the place in a taxi when everybody else was, everybody else was either on a, on a bus or on Shanks' pony, she's always showing off that woman. But, you know, she had a lot to show off about. And perhaps there are many, many other people who are busily hiding their lights under the proverbial bushel, you know, because they don't want to be considered um, bad women, you know. Um, yes. Interesting. I also think the the other point you touched on about only working with people that you like and admire is an important one. And I think many don't necessarily initially have the choice to choose. Maybe their clients, if they started on their own, because they just need to feed themselves and make a living. Um, um, but I have heard the, the same sentiments you share by by others as well. And I think a, a lot of the time it, it is kind of looking back in retrospect, <laughs> thinking, you know, um, in their careers and the feeling of liberation when they were able to start working um, you know, being being a little bit more fussy about who they work with. But I also think that um, even if you don't have your own practice and you're working for someone else in somebody else's practice, the same applies. So, you know, working for people that you like, admire and share kind of similar visions and outlooks with is really important. I think there's nothing more miserable than working for someone that you you just don't share their vision no it's really miserable so those that that's also yeah. really important and i think lots of times you know we work we work in uncongenial situations mostly because we don't we feel we don't have a choice and that if we let go of that particular situation you know we're going to fall through the floor and you know the world's going to come crashing down but it doesn't actually I and mean, when you walk out of that situation where you felt um, um safe in in the sense of um you know financially secure 
or um, you felt that you had you had a job, um, you kind of find that you know the door opens to new new possibilities, um, and it, it's just very odd that um, after seven years of training, people go looking for a job. You know, you shouldn't be looking for a job. You should be thinking about what your your career and what you want to do with your life. Um, I just think that to sacrifice a minimum of seven years, and usually ten for most architects of your life, um, to end up doing, there's nothing wrong with drainage details, you know, but you can, you know, it's not a way to spend 30 years of your life because, um, and, and to have the courage to just to step out you know, and, and, you know, the question is, you know, well, you know, if I step out, what, you know, I'm going to fall. Well, what happens if you fly? Yeah. So it's worth taking the risk at any rate. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Very, very, very true. And something that I, I learned, um, kind of re of recent time to, to do and, and take more risks and opportunity. I think there are lots of opportunities that abound. And I think that sometimes you end up really surprising yourselves. There, there are things that I'm doing now that I would never have expected to, to be doing if I didn't take, take that risk and kind of throw caution to, to the wind a little bit. And then finding that actually they're really interesting um, niches that I never even exist and uh, thought um, that I would enjoy that I absolutely really love. <laughs> so again, I mean, that's uh, really, really fantastic advice. So moving on to the next question, um, what do you think, Elsie, what do you think an equitable city looks like? Wow. It just reminded me of the first, what, what I was thinking of the first days of lockdown. You know, when we were, were in, the, in this supposedly catastrophic situation where um, we all had to stay indoors and you were only allowed out for X amount of time and, you know, some people had an apocalyptic view. But when you did walk around London, you suddenly found that you were in this place which was congenial, where you could hear the birds in the parks where you could walk through the parks, where you weren't running across the road because some maniac was going to try and kill you in their fast motor. Um, and the city became a place for walking and cycling and families and, um, and, and, just, and just being somewhere you liked. And I thought, oh, that's why I live in London, because it is a really fantastic place to be. So I kind of think not so much about, oh, yeah, and, and, and you know, the, and then there are all the statistics about planes have stopped flying, so, you know, you can see the stars at night and, and the pollution levels are reducing. Um, so, so I suppose I don't so much think about design when I'm asked that question, but I think about how we move around cities and how we appreciate the buildings that are around us and we appreciate the parks you know you can walk from one end of london to the other end of london just going through green spaces um actually my daughter my daughter had this wonderful way this wonderful walk she did which she called the w walk which was walking from um 
central London, from Baker Street to Hyde Park, only using streets that began with W. <laughs> <laughs> you should try it. Look, you know, there are all sorts of ways of being in love with the city, which suddenly became a reality. So I think that question is really about perceptions, perceptions of the city. And also the question, questions around um, decolonization and looking at how, becoming aware of how the empire lives in London. Mm. You know, it's not, and it's not just the statues, the, the styles of the buildings, it's the, it's the pagodas and the Venetian influences and the Chinese influences, and you kind of think, so this is how empire works, you know, you go out into the rest of the world, knock people on the head, nick their stuff, and bring it all home, <laughs> and, then, and then lock the doors, just in case they try, <laughs> they try and get their stuff back. Um, well, that, I mean, that's a sort of joke way of looking at it, but you know, around about the same time, there was that controversy about statues, about um, uh, the Bristol, the Bristol series of incidents in Bristol, um, and all those things coming together at the same time, and also having time to think about these situations because you weren't in a mad rush, you know, to get from one place to another. Um, and, and, and one of the things about being in that city in London at that time was that when you went out, you went out to appreciate the city. You weren't sort of dashing from east to west um, in order to prove to a client or somebody important that, you know, your physical presence was required in order to communicate with them. But actually, because actually communication doesn't require your physical presence, it just requires an interface, right? So that sense of, um, you know, if, if I've got an hour every day to walk, where am I going to do that? You know, mm. how am I going to do that? Um, so, I mean, it's been a pretty tough 15 months for all sorts of reasons. But I think there are other things that we we will have discovered. Um, not you know, not least that we were using minuscule amount of the power of um, technology. So yeah, so so I think, and I think that um, other people in other cities um, have been making those kinds of communications. You know, how how do you how do you make a city that that's safe? and congenial and a nice place to be. Mm. And the answer has been actually pretty much the same across across um, cultures. The interesting thing is that women designers, architects and engineers have had a big voice in what the different normal looks like. And that's been, that's been very special actually. Yeah, and a really refreshing um, response and perspective on, on that. I found a really gorgeous walk during lockdown and I've been the same location for well over six or seven years. Did not know it existed. It's about 15 minutes away from me. So like you say, not being forced to just rush and transition from A to B, but really exploring the spaces around us has, has been fantastic and a re revelation for my myself as well. So the last question, it, it's a bonus one. 
Um, so I, it is. So what are the steps do you think need to be taken both at um, grassroots level and maybe at institutional level to bring about um, permanent change or progress in the field of architecture in terms of gender equality, but also looking at that intersectionally as well, like you touched on, because it really is important that we look at these things intersectionally. Uh, I think now that architecture in the early years, at kindergarten, is really, I mean, I think it, it is a really important step so that you kind of unwrap the, uh, the word architecture and as you were saying about looking around yourself um talking to kids in three to five year olds about what their world is you know and the fact that we all live in houses we all live in an environment and what's it made of what are our houses made of? What are the materials? You know, the fact that I mean, we were talking about Lardy Quali earlier on, that we all live in these clay, clay buildings, you know, buildings which are made of clay. Um, and, you know, having an understanding that um, bricks and tiles and are made of earth, you know, that, that lots of kids play with, um, but making those making those connections, um, flowers and um, children having gardens, you know, making gardens, so that you begin to learn about trees and plants and <clears throat> and those kinds of connections. Learning about the stars, you know, being outside, and I mean, I've just been I've just been reading a, a lot about Rousseau and eighteenth nineteenth century philosophers, but there was no sort of divide between being a scientist and being an artist. This strict definition of if you're an artist, then what you do is you make stuff and you put it in a gallery and people come along and look at it. And if you're lucky, they pay you lots of money. There wasn't that link. There wasn't that strict divide between, um, and, and there still isn't in, in lots of parts of Africa, between people who make stuff for a living and people who um, who sell stuff for a living, or people who can make their living through their brain, and people who make their living through their hands. So, and 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 that division is now so so embedded in construction and architecture um, that it's it's actually quite hard to think your way around it. Um, and the systems and the cultures and the finances have those divisions, those class divisions, very strictly embedded in them. And I think that this is something we're beginning to explore in, in the work that we're doing in Ghana, is working with um, using Maria Montessori's philosophy of early years learning um, to bring children of three to five into the world of architecture and the built environment. Um, and then, so we, we started a system called the Green Clubs. So we've got quite a number of these Green Clubs and the Green Clubs have so far been sort of 10 years upwards, I would say. And we've just started working with, um, in, in Ghana, like kindergarten is called KG. So we just started Green Clubs for KGs. 
you know, with the eight years and upwards, 10 years and upwards, acting as mentors to the very small children. Uh, and it's really, really exciting, you know, because they just have a range of thoughts, a range of openness to ideas. It's really quite special. And they ask questions that you kind of think, hmm, the simplicity of, of being wide-eyed, you know, and, and without, without pre cultural prejudice yeah. is just something I think we all stand to benefit from. So I would say start teaching architecture at the age of three. Love it. Perfect. Thank you so very much, Elsie. It's been, um, it, it's been brilliant as always. I've, I've learned lots. I'm going away with homework <laughs> as well. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. Really. And I, I just, I think you have, you and Lenry and Tara and the Paradigm Group have just done so much. I mean, just, you know, Paradigm and and um, Black Females in Architecture, just splendid. I, and, and I had no idea when I started trying to kick doors down in, <laughs> in 2017 that this would be the outcome. So I'm, and, 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 and we have Sir David as the, as the Dreamer Gold Medalist. Who does not it? Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. So thanks for everything you've done. And uh, it's really been a complete privilege and a real pleasure. Thank you, Elsie. Thanks for leading the way. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to 29% Equal in conversation with Part W. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. This podcast has been created with thanks to the RIBA Research Fund and supported by Katie Lloyd-Thomas of Newcastle University. Please subscribe to stay updated.